After the winter months commenced, we had a succession of pleasant days till the 19th of January. On the morning of the 19th, after rain, the wind changed from southwesterly to northwest and became violent. In the morning, the thermometer was at freezing point, but before night, it was at three plus indoors and below zero abroad. The ice soon spread over our bays and harbors. The vessel lay adrift some time before it was thought safe to visit her, and the wind was so violent as to do damage in several places. The extraordinary contrast between the weather of the season and the violence of this wind and cold induced many to consider it as more sudden and violent change than had been recorded in the history of our atmosphere. Essex Register, Salem, Massachusetts, January 24, 1810. 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change, a time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 24, New England's Cold Friday. The change of seasons in New England has something of a magical quality, and it's got a tremendous hold on our popular consciousness. If I say to you the words autumn in New England, probably some pictures come immediately to your mind. Brilliant golden leaves, white church steeples, picket fences, quaint little fishing towns fronting glassy gray-blue waters. As fall turns to winter in places like Vermont or New Hampshire or western Massachusetts, the scene becomes like countless Christmas cards. The trees and fields covered in white, the sky crystal blue, horse-drawn sleighs traversing age-old pathways between ancient towns that still look much the same as they did 200 or even 300 years ago. But reality and history seldom validate those popular consciousness images. While by all accounts the autumn of the year 1809 was no less vivid and colorful than any other, the winter it turned into was a strange one. It was curiously warm. The only snow that winter was in late November, and even Christmas was abnormally warm. New Englanders in the second decade, especially those who lived outside of urban areas like Boston, which was most people, tended to measure the severity of winters by how many days you needed a sleigh to get around. In an era where ground transportation was only as fast as a horse could trot, and every road in America was unpaved, the horse-drawn sleigh was the key means of transportation across a snowbound countryside. How often you could use a sleigh was a measure of how bad your winter was. Leonard Hill, a man who kept a meticulous diary of weather observations at East Bridgewater, Massachusetts, for an astonishing 63 years, mentions sleighing a lot in his weather journal. Sleighing the first part of the month, he records, from March 1809. In December 1817, he wrote, Cold month, some sleighing, no deep snow. 
You can't use a sleigh when there's no snow. You just use a normal horse-drawn wagon for that. And so you see how the sleigh becomes closely identified with the quality of winters in New England before the Industrial Revolution. You didn't see the sleigh much in the winter of 1809-1810. Something seemed a little odd about this season, though nobody could really put their finger on it. Then, one weekend in late January 1810, winter suddenly came with a vengeance to New England. In the course of one day, one frigid, terrible Friday, the whole region was plunged into a deep freeze that most people who lived through it remembered vividly for the rest of their lives. It was a double dose of disaster, sub-zero temperatures combined with high destructive winds that unroofed houses and were responsible for several deaths. New Englanders are used to harsh winters, but experiencing the harshest winter of all in a single day was a bizarre and unnerving experience. Yet the cold snap of January 1810 was much more than just an extreme weather event. It was sort of a rite of passage, and a marker in memory and collective consciousness that stands almost alone in New England's folklore. And New England is a place that's defined, more so than any other part of America, by its folklore. From the way the event crystallized into history and memory, we can gain some pretty fascinating insights into how the people of New England in the second decade viewed themselves and their world and it's something you won't read about in a history book. So join me now for the chilling tale of New England's Cold Friday. Good evening, and welcome back to Second Decade. This episode is the first episode of the second season, our first back after summer break, and it was quite a summer. I want to make a couple of announcements before we get into the substance of tonight's episode. But first, I want to thank you all for coming back and for continuing to support Second Decade. This season, I'm going to continue to bring you true stories from the 18-teens, some well-known, some lesser-known. A lot has happened since the first season ended, however. For one thing, I don't have access anymore to the wonderful library that made it so easy to research the first season episodes. I still have sources, and I'm a pretty resourceful guy when it comes to history research, but I may not be able to keep up the same production schedule as the first season. Second, plans are afoot for me to host another podcast, this one a channel through NBN, New Books Network, involving environmental studies and environmental history. We have done a lot of environmental history here on Second Decade. Think of the episode on Mount Tambora, so this may be of interest to some of you. Go to newbooksnetwork.com and you can find the Environmental Studies channel under the category Science and Technology. That's where I'll be when that project gets rolling. And third, just an announcement. Since the end of the last season, I completed my PhD in Environmental History. So I am now officially Dr. Sean Munger. I doubt that makes the slightest bit of difference to anyone out there. The beauty of history podcasts is that they're accessible to everyone. And I know many people who run history podcasts who don't have PhDs, and they're every bit as good or better than this one. I'm sure many of you listen to other history podcasts besides this one. I do too. I like History of Oil. I listen to Hidden History of Los Angeles, Eastern Border, Battles of the First World War, Groovy Historian. I don't think any of those people have PhDs, and it really doesn't matter. If you're knowledgeable and passionate about a historical subject, there will be listeners out there who are into it. The more history, the better. So now let's talk about New England's Cold Friday. This is a really fascinating event, and not one that you'd see in a lot of general history books. 
As I said in the intro, this event has a lot to do with folklore, which is a form of popular consciousness, and an extremely important aspect of New England history and identity, possibly more so than many other American places. New Englanders have such a vivid link to their past, and their past is usually defined in collective and popular terms, what real people experienced in their villages and farms, especially in the era of, and shortly after, the American Revolution. If you think about that, it makes sense. America, in the decades after 1776, was democratizing, redefining itself as a popular republic, and New England was the hotbed, the cradle of that revolution. What's the idyllic paradigm of American democracy? The idea of the town hall, of course. Citizens coming together to discuss issues and make decisions collectively. Where did that idea come from? From New England from the town halls and churches of Boston, Worcester, Salem, Providence, Woonsocket, Hartford, Guilford, Exeter, Middlebury, Brattleboro. When I mention these place names, especially in conjunction with the American Revolution or the early Republic period, which the second decade is part of, you're probably thinking of some of those images I mentioned in the introduction. Golden leaves, picket fences, church steeples, horse-drawn sleighs, jumbled graveyards full of ancient stones. We all have sort of a supernatural sense that that's New England of the past. That's the canvas where our story takes place. But before we get to 1810, the beginning of the second decade, we have to talk about another earlier event from New England history that in some ways set the blueprint for how the Cold Friday would freeze its way into popular consciousness. I'm talking about a mysterious and fascinating environmental event that has come to be called New England's Dark Day. On May 19, 1780, incidentally also a Friday, a strange inexplicable darkness began to descend over the region. It was first noticed at Rupert in Bennington County in what's now Vermont, at that time it was still part of New York State. It began at sunrise on that Friday, where the sun was feeble and obscured. Gradually the darkness descended. In Hampton, New Hampshire, darkness fell at about 11 o'clock in the morning. Domestic animals like chickens and cows began to behave as if night had fallen. Crickets and frogs were heard. The streets were dark, and people lit candles in their houses. It was baffling. A famous incident comes down to us from the dark day of 1780. The Governor's Council of Connecticut, now the Connecticut State Senate, was in session that Friday afternoon. As the chamber was plunged into darkness, there was talk that perhaps this was the biblical day of judgment, and someone made a motion for adjournment. Abraham Davenport, a member of the council, is recorded as saying, quote, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching, or it's not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. End quote. Poet John Greenleaf Whittier, who was active later in the 19th century, wrote a poem about this incident and Davenport's quote. Published in 1866 in the Atlantic Monthly, the poem immortalized Davenport as a brave patriot and cast the dark day as a trial of American civic virtue. The dark day occurred at the darkest hour of the Revolutionary War, when it was very much in doubt whether the United States could keep its independence. All of this context is important. How the dark day was remembered in popular consciousness is at least as important as what actually happened up in the sky and on the ground on that strange Friday. So what caused New England's dark day? The answer appears to be forest fires. At the same time as the dark day, ashes and cinders were reported raining from the sky in various locations. 
The sky and the moon appeared red, telltale signs of smoke conditions. It rained in a few places, and the rainwater had sort of a sooty film over it, obviously ash particles. There's evidence to indicate that a major forest fire was burning in Ontario in the spring of 1780. Dendrochronology is the study of tree rings. It's a form of proxy data that's used, among other things, in climate change research. Well, study of tree rings from the Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada shows fire scars on trees dating from 1780. With tree rings, if you know when the tree was cut, you can count the rings and date certain events exactly. Clearly, there was a major fire event in the Northeast in that year. This hits home a bit for me. I live in Oregon, and this summer, 2017, there was a catastrophic series of forest fires. Hundreds of thousands of acres, dried out by drought and climate change conditions, went up in flames. We had our own dark day in Portland in early August, and the conditions very much correlate with what I've read of the dark day in New England. Dimness, appearance of the sun red, sooty smell in the air, cinders raining from the sky, weird animal behavior, the whole thing. I have no doubt that this is what caused the 1780 event. So let's fast forward now 30 years. It's January 1810, the beginning of the second decade. The revolution is now in the past, but most people remember it. There's a new government under the Constitution. James Madison has been in the White House not quite a year. Though there have been a lot of political changes, day-to-day -day life in New England goes on pretty much the same way it has since colonial times. This is the last gasp before the Industrial Revolution gets going. Most people still live on farms. Thursday, January 18th, was not a particularly cold day. It was 42 degrees that day in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and farmers were out plowing their fields. There had been no snow since November. The ground was bare, rivers and creeks were flowing, and it seemed a perfectly ordinary, non-extreme winter day. It rained lightly in the evening. Completely normal day in midwinter in New England. We have a wonderful record of how the cold Friday unfolded, complete with hard data. There was a man in Portsmouth named Charles Pierce who kept meticulous weather records there for 15 years. He was one of a number of people at that time, amateurs who were interested in weather, and who would mark down temperature, rainfall, and wind data in a little book, mainly just because they were fascinated. There was no systematic network of weather stations at that time. I wrote an academic article on these people. I called them weather watchers. Thomas Jefferson, incidentally, was one of them. Anyway, Pierce's temperature data has survived. The cold front apparently started to come in just before midnight as the wind shifted from southwest to northwest. The wind picked up. At dawn on Friday, presumably when Pierce got up, his thermometer read 7 degrees below zero. That's an incredible 49 degree drop in just about 12 hours. It's really rare to see a temperature swing that big in so short a time. And it kept falling. At noon it was minus 12. At 3 p.m. it was minus 13. It finally sank to 14 degrees below zero, a 56 degree difference in half a day. That's how severe and how quick the cold Friday came on. Other readings we have are pretty similar. At Brunswick, Maine, 68 miles northeast of Portsmouth, a thermometer that read 41 degrees at noon on Thursday registered 10 degrees below zero at 8.30 on Friday morning. And barometers were going crazy too. The same man who made this temperature measurement noted his barometer was at 29.20 inches of mercury and the winds were gale force. That's the equivalent of an icy tornado ripping across Maine and the Massachusetts coast. It was a little warmer in other areas, but not by much. 
In Boston, the temperature fell to 6 degrees below zero, but barely climbed to 1 degree above in the early afternoon. In Cambridge, it was too cold for the freshmen to hang around outside in Harvard Square. In 1810, Stephen Salisbury and Aaron White, the college kids I profiled in episode 14, weren't at Harvard yet, but some of their older classmates were. One of the reasons for the remarkable cultural reach of Cold Friday was that everybody in New England experienced it. It wasn't just cold in a couple of places, or somewhat cold here and bitterly frigid there. The air mass that settled over the region was pretty uniform. The temperatures attested. In Williamstown in western Massachusetts, minus 14 degrees. Worcester, minus 12. Middlebury, Vermont, minus 13.5. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, minus 14. Cambridge, minus 8. Boston, minus 6. Salem, minus 5. The urban areas were warmer because of what meteorologists call the urban heat island effect, which was, in fact, discovered during the second decade. A newspaper, the New Hampshire Sentinel, ran this article shortly after the event. Quote, Marlboro, Cheshire County. The transition from temperate to cold within 24 hours past has exceeded any meteorological observation within my recollection for 15 years past. At 11 o'clock on the morning of the 18th, the thermometer in a northwest room, no fire in the adjoining rooms, stood at 51 degrees above zero. At 10 o'clock on the morning of the 19th day, 8 degrees below zero. At 11 o'clock, 12 degrees below, 63 degrees difference in temperature. End quote. A man named Thomas Robbins, a congregational minister from East Windsor, Connecticut, is an important source of records of daily life in New England in the era of the second decade. Robbins kept a meticulous diary for the entirety of the first half of the 19th century, from 1796 to shortly before his death in 1856. I've often consulted Robbins' diary in my academic work because he writes a lot about the weather. Here were his entries for that weekend. Quote, January 19th. I think I never saw so few people in the streets at Hartford. Not a team to be seen. I was very cold. January 20th. Tremendous cold. No person scarcely goes out. January 23rd. The river, which was perfectly clear last Thursday, shut over on Friday the 19th night and is now in the best condition for crossing. People cross on Saturday. The ground is wholly bare. But it was not just cold and ice. If the cold Friday was just a matter of low temperatures, that would have been one thing. It was, however, accompanied by high winds, a gale that spread tragedy and loss throughout the region. One tragedy in particular, connected with Cold Friday, was to attain almost mythical status, in a fascinating example of a story that we would say in 21st century terms went viral. I mentioned in the intro that I'm an author. I have a book that came out in December 2016. It's called The Valley of Forever, and it's a very unusual book. Science fiction, it involves time and time travel, but its central focus is on the nature of time itself. The bookends of the story involve a cruise liner anchored at the Bahamas, which suffers a disastrous fire, curiously echoing another event that occurred 23 years earlier in another part of the world. Among the passengers is Jerusha King, a woman in the process of a divorce, who came aboard the ship to reconnect with an old lover, a mysterious man named Dale, whom she met in Mexico decades ago. There's also Ronan, a man who may or may not be insane, and who seems to believe the fire is the crucial event in an endless loop of time he's been fated to relive over and over. 
and there's Olaf, a time traveler, sent back from 500 years in the future to witness the disaster in the hopes of learning an elusive truth that can save the world he came from. All of these stories come together in The Valley of Forever, a book that takes its characters and its readers to the farthest limit of human consciousness and perhaps to the end of time itself. The Valley of Forever is $2.99 in ebook format, and there's a paperback version for $8.99. You can find it on my author page on Amazon. Just type in my name, Sean Munger. The book has a five star rating on Amazon and has been favorably compared to The Time Traveler's Wife. Check it out. Let's get back to the history. The little town of Sanborton, New Hampshire, located in Belknap County, is exactly the kind of quintessential New England picture-postcard town whose image I've evoked several times in this episode. The old Bay Meeting House and Vestry is just the sort of whitewashed church where the town hall meeting, that emblem of New England democracy, often took place. Sanborton's historical identity, like many small towns in New England, is shaped by local history. On January 19, 1810, the Cold Friday, a tragedy associated with the weather event put Sanborton on the map culturally, and also ensured the remembrance of Cold Friday in the collective consciousness of 19th century New England. It happened at the home of Jeremiah Ellsworth, evidently a farmer. The severe cold snap that descended over New England after midnight on the 19th was accompanied by terrible high winds. If you lived in a cold place with biting winds, you know how piercing the cold can be. There's just no escape from it. The winds on the morning of that cold Friday were not just uncomfortable, they were dangerous. Reports from all over the region speak of houses being unroofed. You see that term a lot in the reports. Ellsworth was awakened shortly before sunrise by the sound of part of his roof sloughing off in the high winds. The house must not have been particularly sturdy, because in the violence of the wind, Ellsworth became convinced that the whole place was about to be blown apart. Ellsworth's wife grabbed their youngest child and fled to the cellar. There were two other kids tucked in bed upstairs. She left them for the moment because they weren't dressed, whereas the baby was. She figured the bed covers were protection from the cold, at least until she could come back up and fetch the other two children. Mr. Ellsworth, in the meantime, decided to go for help. He got on his horse and tried to ride to the farm of his nearest neighbor, but the wind was so high that the horse couldn't make any headway. Instead, he turned around, heading the opposite direction. The settlements on the outskirts of Sanborton were pretty far apart. The next nearest farm, belonging to the Brown family, was a quarter mile away. By the time Ellsworth got there, his feet were frostbitten and he was utterly exhausted. He pleaded for help to go back and get his family, who were exposed to the icy winds in their disintegrating house. He couldn't make it back in the cold. Instead, Brown decided to go back himself, to bring back Mrs. Ellsworth and the kids. Brown hitched his horse to his winter sleigh, remember there was no snow on the ground, and took off as fast as he could. He got to the Ellsworth farm and found the wife and the youngest kid down in the cellar. The oldest children were still in bed, but pieces of the roof had come off and the fierce wind was coming into the bedroom. Brown put the whole bed into the sleigh and covered the kids with blankets. The wife got into the sleigh too, clutching her baby, but before they got very far away from the house, the wind blew the sleigh right over, spilling everyone to the ground. Brown did the best he could. He couldn't carry all three kids at once, so he left the youngest, who, as you remember, was dressed and bundled up. He left him by the side of a large log and tried to rescue the other two kids, carrying one under each arm, making slow progress against the gale. In the meantime, Mrs. Ellsworth, delirious from cold, 
was literally crawling on her hands and knees toward the Brown farmhouse. It reportedly took two hours for Brown to reach his own house, two hours to walk a quarter of a mile against the ferocious winds. He finally got inside. The children were barely alive, and they didn't survive long. The report of the incident says they died in a few minutes. Somebody went back for the baby, the one who'd been left by the side of the log. When the body was found, the poor child was frozen stiff. All three of the Ellsworth children were dead. These are all the details we have of the Ellsworth tragedy on Cold Friday. They come from a newspaper account which first appeared in a paper called the New Hampshire Patriot, published in Concord on February 6, 1810. The article, though lengthy and kind of flowery in its language, doesn't even give Mrs. Ellsworth's first name, nor even the ages of the children who died, much less their names. The headline of the story consists of just one word, melancholy, with an exclamation point. To understand why the Ellsworth story went viral, you have to understand that newspapers in the second decade, especially in the Northeast, where most newspapers in America at that time were printed, functioned very similarly to our social media today. The occupation journalist or newspaper reporter did not exist in the second decade. Printers of papers would reprint stuff they saw in other papers, or letters people gave them, or just word-of-mouth stories they heard on the street. There was no copyright, no ownership of media content. A paper that picked up a story from another newspaper would just reprint it verbatim. Kind of like if you're on WordPress, you can reblog someone else's blog article on your own site. Furthermore, the newspapers that reprinted items like this did not necessarily vouch for their veracity. While not appearing on this story, I've seen numerous newspaper items from the second decade bearing a headline something to the effect of, Important If True. The Ellsworth story was what we would today call clickbait. A tragic story arising out of a highly unusual weather event that everyone around the region experienced to some degree of severity, and is also a story that tugs at your heartstrings. In amidst its account of the Ellsworth family tragedy, the New Hampshire Patriot article said this, quote, Who can suppress a sympathetic tear when he considers their wretched, distressing situation, three so frozen that they could not leave the house, two dead, and one out in the open world, exposed to all the severity of the weather? Exclamation point. Anyone who's read a lot of newspapers from this era, which I have, will instantly recognize this kind of purple prose as emblematic of clickbait stories from the second decade. It was intended to sell papers, and to get picked up and reprinted in a lot of other papers. That it certainly did. David Ludlam, a weather historian who researched the Cold Friday event, as well as numerous other events in New England weather history found, he was writing in the 1960s, he found the New Hampshire Patriot article reprinted in numerous other newspapers in the winter of 1810, and he tells us, quote, all subsequent retellings appear to have been based on this single newspaper story. So here we have an interesting phenomenon, an item of local history, weather history, incomplete without even the names of the people involved, makes its way into a newspaper, goes viral throughout the region, and eventually helps to crystallize the whole event of Cold Friday into folklore and the collective consciousness of New England in the second decade. Beyond the Sanborton tragedy, Effects of the cold decade were memorable across the region. A dispatch from Springfield, New Hampshire, recorded that, on the morning of January 19th, a heavy fog hung over the river, which was unlike anything anyone in the area, even the old-timers, had ever seen. A newspaper story described it, quote, It was found that the wind took up small particles of water and carried them into the atmosphere, 
and was immediately congealed into fine snow, and rose some as much as 40 feet above the surface of the water. There were economic dislocations from Cold Friday. The high winds unroofed houses, tore apart sheds and barns, and blew trees into buildings, ruining crops the people had stored to get through the winter, causing disruptions for farms and families. A meeting house in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, was unroofed by the gale. Being still largely agricultural, New England was hit hard by the event. While its effects were most pronounced in New England, Cold Friday wasn't just limited to the region. New York City didn't get quite as cold as New England, but it was still pretty cold. Down to zero degrees on January 19th, the first of four days of a cold snap. The wind shredded sails and broke masts of ships in New York Harbor. One, a steamboat called the Raritan, sank at its wharf. Chimneys were blown down. Local papers described the event as a complete hurricane. The winds were felt in Washington, D.C., too. Congress, the first Congress in the term of the new president, James Madison, was in session at the time. The winds were thought to be so dangerous around the Capitol building that Congress adjourned for its evening session. The main subjects of debate that week involved the continuing problems with Great Britain, especially on the high seas. The War of 1812 came out of these problems two and a half years later. Though it was never as cold in New England as it was on the morning of Friday the 19th, the cold snap seems to have lasted in many places for about four days. The cold air mass moved slowly south. At Monticello in Virginia, where he was retired from the presidency, Thomas Jefferson recorded a temperature of 5.5 degrees on January 22nd. The temperature even sank to 9 degrees above zero at Camden, South Carolina. By this time, New England was finally starting to warm up. Cold Friday did linger in public consciousness. In my academic research on the second decade, which involved reading a lot of diaries from the period as well as newspapers, Cold Friday kept coming up, especially when other cold snaps or similar weather events happened. And they happened a lot. As you might remember from episode 7, the decade of the 18-teens was marked by a period of temporary global climate change, global cooling, a result of two major volcanic eruptions in tropical latitudes, one in 1809, one in 1815. In 1813, Susan Heath, an 18-year-old girl who lived in Brookline, Massachusetts, near Boston, recorded a cold snap at the end of January. She said it was, As cold as the cold Friday two or three years ago, it was impossible for us to keep comfortable. Many residents of the region compared subsequent cold snaps to the cold Friday of 1810. In February 1817, another terrible cold snap punished New England. In some places, temperatures were even lower than they had been seven years earlier. In the Farmer's Almanac for Boston for 1817, published by one Robert B. Thomas, the day of February 14, 1817, also a Friday incidentally, was, quote, ascertained to be several degrees colder than the cold Friday of 1810. Many people suffered much and some lost their lives. That same week, Someone called Jay Farrar wrote to the Boston Daily Advertiser with a list of the coldest days in the past 27 years. February 14, 1817 was number one. January 19, 1810 was number two. Farrar specifically referred to Cold Friday as the 1810 event. The Providence Gazette and Country Journal, Rhode Island, also compared the two. It said February 1817 was worse, but again specifically mentioned Cold Friday of 1810 as the benchmark. Susan Heath, who'd been thinking of Cold Friday in January 1813, thought of it again in February 1817. She wrote in her diary, 
the weather was a few degrees colder than the cold Friday so long celebrated as an extraordinary day. The men used every precaution to keep from freezing, like tying up ears and heads. The coffee threatened to become ice before we could conveniently swallow it. Though the cold snap of February 1817 was arguably worse, it did not have the same kind of pull on folklore and public consciousness that Cold Friday did. It was colder, but February 1817 was less homogenous. Different places experienced different conditions. Unlike January 1810, where everyone, wherever they were, suffered more or less together. It's clear that Cold Friday was remembered as an extraordinary event. David Ludlam believes that the newspaper story of the Sanborton tragedy was the single most republished story of the entire period that did not concern a political event. That, plus the unanimity with which New Englanders experienced it, made it live in their memory. He writes, Thus, Cold Friday entered the folklore of America, and wherever bitter gales out of the Northwest suddenly descended on the countryside, the chilling tale of the three little Ellsworth children was retold many times as family groups huddled in front of the fireplace. And with that, our own chilling tale comes to an end. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it'll greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Remember, I'm soon going to be hosting some interview podcasts on the New Books Network. Go to newbooksnetwork.com category science and technology, and find Enviro Studies. That'll get rolling soon. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff on my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Early American Winters, 1604-1820, by David M. Ludlam, American Meteorological Society, 1966. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Original music by George K. Thanks, George. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big.